Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's no getting away from the past. It's like, you know, Wordsworth uh, says in his, he's got a poem. I, I, I don't think, I don't know if it's a poem, but it might be a play. It's called The Borderers written in 1842, and he was talking about when somebody does something, you know, the nature of regret. He says that um, suffering is permanent, obscure, and dark, and shares the nature of infinity. It does. I'm telling you, it does. Especially when you commit something such as indelible as murder. You can burn somebody's house down. As long as nobody got hurt, you can rebuild, you can build them Buckingham Palace. You can make that better. But when you kill somebody, there's no, you can donate a kidney, you can save a life, you cannot make that moment better in any way. You can't. I thought about it. I still, I'm thinking about it now. You can't. You cannot, once that, once that deed has been done, that is it. There's no coming, there's no Jesus here. There's no resurrection of the dead. There's no miracles. There's just plain, cold, hard reality. Dempsey Hawkins was 16 years old in 1976, the year he murdered his teenage sweetheart. 14-year-old Susan Jacobson. Her body lay undiscovered in a remote part of Staten Island, New York for almost two years. In May of 1978, Hawkins was arrested in Illinois where he had moved to live with his father. He was 18. Two police officers, they would state troopers, uh, came, knocked at the door. They said, uh, we have... 
you know, you have to come with us. We have a, a warrant for your arrest, second degree murder. When those handcuffs came on me and I heard the slow click, click, click of those handcuffs, that noise, it was like a reverberation. And that felt that click, click, click. I mean, it just got right into my brain. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was almost a silence, you know, kind of quiet noise, but it was really thunderous in my mind. And at that moment, it was relief because I didn't have to run anymore. It was over. But it wasn't over. Not for Dempsey and not for Susan Jacobson's family. That day in 1978 was just the beginning of Dempsey's journey through the US courts and prison systems. A journey that would consume almost 40 years of his life. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World. This is the story of Dempsey Hawkins and the murder of Susan Jacobson. I was scared to death. Yeah, I was afraid, but you know what? took away uh, what could have been, you know, just total fear was the guilt and the shame and the acknowledgement that I was where I was supposed to be. After that crime, I was supposed to be nowhere but Rikers Island. So there was an acknowledgement that I was right where I was supposed to be. But I walked into that cell. It was a hot, sweltering day. The next person had not, the window was shut tight. The last person who was in that cell had not flushed the toilet. There was brown urine in that toilet bowl. And that cell just hung heavy with the smell of urine. And But I didn't know it at that time. But I look back on it and that was the prelude to all the indignity all the, all the indignity, all the punishment that I would endure through the years, that I would deflect, try to deflect, and that I would deserve. That was the prelude when I walked in that cell and I was hit with that wall of urine on that hot day. And that door just, because the doors just slang shut and you hear that door, you know, mightily, it just goes boom. You know, metal against metal. Dempsey remained in prison on Rikers Island while he awaited his murder trial. And the reason why there was a trial, because, now here we go with my irrationalism, my stupidity, my immaturity, my insanity. I had two, three good lawyers hired by my mother from her firm. They came and spoke with me. They did an investigation and they came back and said, look, we've arranged a plea bargain for you. You tell the judge what you did, how you did it, and the judge then will sentence you to a minimum of five and a maximum of 15 years. All you have to do is walk up that, walk up one flight of stairs 
into the judge's chambers, sit down, speak to the judge. But I couldn't do that. I was still lying. Nobody saw me did anything. Nobody saw me do anything. So how do you prove anything? You didn't see, nobody saw anything. So I'm still, and I'm still scared. I'm still ashamed to admit that. How do I go up and, I couldn't tell my mother this. How can I go up and tell a judge, a stranger? He said, even though he's uh, adjudicating my life, how do I sit down and wait? You know, I've been lying so long for two years. How do I suddenly that day just throw off the facade? You know, just, just undress from all these lies that I've been clothing myself in and stand before him naked in the truth. I couldn't do that. I wasn't that courageous. I wasn't that manly. I wasn't that big in spirit. If I was that manly, if I was that big in spirit, I wouldn't have committed the crime in the first place. I wouldn't have been able to. But so, the, the lawyers there, they they left the case. They said, look, we, don't, we know what's going to happen to you. We know. We don't want your blood on our hands. So they left the case, and I was given a court-appointed attorney. He asked me at what point during the trial. He knew I was lying. He knew this was all, you know, just a you know, formal, formality until that jury comes back with the verdict they would and that the only verdict they could, guilty. So no, I did, I was still lying. I was still, I was still just on a course for just complete self-destruction. It was like I know it's gonna happen. They can give me the death penalty. The hell with it. I did this crime. You know, I destroyed a life, and in doing so, destroyed my own. So let's keep going with the destruction to the bitter end. That's what happened. Had your mother spoken to you about this? Had you, you had obviously been a suspect and had you just said, I had absolutely nothing to do with it? And Yeah, I was lying to her. I wasn't going to tell her, look, Ma, I did this and I'm sorry. And uh, I wish I could, could, you know, turn back the clock, go back in time. You know, I just couldn't bring me, I just couldn't bring myself to, you know, tell her those words. It was like, it would have been like putting a knife to her and just pressing it in. I I wasn't going to do that. I couldn't do it. Well, I remember that the jury coming back and I just remember me standing still and I just, it was just like um, you're in a coffin and you hear that the arrest is one nail. Boom. Going to trial and losing is another nail in that coffin. Boom. So it's all expected. There are no surprises at all. The sentence was 22 years minimal. So to life. In other words, I could stay in prison for a minimum of 22 years, get out with good behavior, or I could stay in there Till I die. So that is the, uh, that's my understanding. And that is uh, what it was. It was 22 years to life. I was to serve 22 years, no if, buts, or ands. 
two, 20 years plus two more. And then I have a chance to speak to a parole board and explain why I might be eligible or a good candidate for parole. I knew I was going to be in prison for some time, but I didn't. For some reason, I thought I would appeal my case and get a little lighter of a sentence. I just didn't see 22 years. I couldn't wrap my head around it. It was a bit, you know, at 18 years old, you know, someone tells you you got to do something, you got to stay somewhere in, uh, for 22 years. That's it. That's how it's going to be. Or, you know, for any anyone, you, they're going to say, what? Really? Then it, you don't believe it. You don't really think it. it's going because you can't see what 22 years is. You don't know its its depth. You can't gauge its depth. It's like going out to the Pacific Ocean. You see the surface, but you have no idea how deep it really is until you start to descend. If the human being can conceive of doing it, it's been done and the person has been apprehended and they've been put on rack alone from rape to arson to murder to robbery to, to the, everything under the sun. It's just an unspoken acknowledgement that nobody asks anyone what they're in for. And the only way somebody would know what somebody was in for if they had a high-profile crime, if they've been on the news, if they've been in the newspaper, and they come to Rikers Island, and everybody knows exactly, you know, what the situation uh, has been. My mother came up one time, and I asked, I said, you know, and I tried not to, you know, show my displeasure about her being there. But, you know, she's, I remember she's saying something to the effect where, I don't care what you say, I was, I'm coming, I was coming. Did you continue to protest your innocence to your mother? Were you hoping to appeal this trial or? Yeah, I was still doing that. Yeah, I was just, you know, it was just going, you know, it was, they were all just coping mechanisms, you know, I just, and plus the, uh, the uh, courage to actually admit my crime was still, it was a long way away. What changed within you that you started to admit your guilt and when did that happen? I don't know when exactly, but what the, the, the catalyst is like for most people, you know, who happen to, you know, uh, find their better self. Time. That's, you know, <laughs> that's it. Nothing else is going to, you know, accelerate. You know, there's no switch. There's no kind of drug. There's no kind of therapy. There's no nothing but time. Time matures us. Time brings us to different different places in our lives, different states of being, different mindsets. And so it was only through time that I came through, came to a higher mindset. I was speaking to one guy and he was really, really vehement about having not done what he was charged with doing. But I didn't believe it. And I'm saying to myself, who's this guy kidding? You know, he's like, you know, in a James Cagney movie, you know, with a tin cup behind bars, you know, running the, the tin cup against the bars, screaming, I'm innocent, let me out. So, and when I, and so look, hearing conversations like that, I'm seeing myself. 
And I'm saying, whoa, 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 don't put this guy down. That's you. That's been you since you committed that crime. And so that's when I said, wait a minute. It's like, it's like being a, a, in a, a mirror reflecting my inner self, my inner voice, my interior. And so when I saw that, this guy and other people, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm doing the same thing. It's me. That's me. I'm looking at, you know, replicas of myself walking around here. And so that's when it started to say, hey, you know, it's, you know we, 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 we use a term, it's, a, it's a, um, a, a, a phrase, slang, man up. Man the fuck up and own what you did. Be real. You got to keep, be real. If you're not real with yourself, how can you ever be real with anyone else? Look, this is how it is. You know, I did this. I'm terribly sorry. I don't know what else I can do, but you know, uh, yeah, I can't. I'm not running anymore. I'm not lying to you. I'm not lying to anyone about this. Are there key moments then? Do you remember birthdays? times when you wish you were out you were out times you wish you could have formed a relationship with somebody is that something you realized that you you were missing in your life because uh, of something that happened when you were 16 yeah that was all fantasy though you know and and, and for me to you know uh you know um don't imagine you know um what I could have been doing had I not been in prison, you know, if I had a birthday, maybe a holiday and things like that, that was always tempered by, wait a minute, Susan would have liked to have birthdays too. She would have liked to have enjoyed holidays. Who the hell am I to want, you know? So there was never, I I never had that luxury of um, feeling sorry for myself, you might say, or wishing better. Because, like I say, I mean this, that I could not get away from the crime and everything that crime meant and means. We have these two main drives, these two main drives. Number one, number two is the sex drive. Number one, self-preservation. You're going to do anything and everything to save yourself, no matter what the situation. You're faced with, uh, you know, an uh, onslaught to your being. The coping mechanisms kick in. How am I going to make this? How am I going to survive this? How am I going to live? Continue on. Because I'm telling myself right now, all that I'm going through is one long training day for post-prison life. Because when you acknowledge what you've done, when you come to terms with it, there's only one place to go, and that's up in yourself. Your job, my job, was to become, if possible, a better person coming out than I went in. And I was determined to do that. So my first parole hearing was in Danamora, and I was 40. It was March of 2000. Danamora is a prison known as uh, Little Siberia because it's located near the Canadian border. Years ago, major crime figures from the mafia were sent there. If you've seen the movie Goodfellas, you know, at one point there's a scene, guys are in prison, they're cooking and things like that. That's 
that's like modeled after Dana Mora because back in the day, years ago, you know, 30s, 40s, a lot of, you know, mob figures went up there because it was so far away from New York City. I thought I was going, I thought I was going to be released because I thought I had made, I had done 22 years, no incidents, no problems. I done straight time, no drugs, no nothing. Straight time on my feet, didn't lean on anyone, didn't, you know, didn't cause trouble, just did that time from one day right up to 22 years. And I thought in my mind, hey, you know, I, you know, that's my, um, that's my punishment. And I did that, you know, and uh, I was given 22 years with the expectation that if I, you know, kept my nose clean, I would be released. So uh, I was naive, though, when I went in there. I didn't know how the system, I had no idea how it worked. I was really, really naive. After even being in prison after 22 years, it was amazing how naive I actually was to how things worked, how the system really worked. Because when I went in there and started speaking with, um, her name was Patricia Tappan. She was the person that I was speaking to, and she was appointed by Governor George Pataki. George Pataki came into, uh, became governor uh, on a tough-on-crime platform. His parole board, his hand-picked parole board, had one message from him. Lock him up, keep him locked up, throw away the key. And when I was speaking to Patricia Tappan on that day of my parole hearing, she told me, if you think you're going to be released by us, you've got another thing coming. Did Susan Jacobson's family um, state their case to the parole board or was it just literally a political decision? I didn't know it at the time, but you know, I know now that every time I went to the parole board, they had voiced their opposition, their adamant opposition to my release. And I don't hold it against them. I understand it fully. And at one point, I went to another parole hearing. It was the second. Two years later, I was in Auburn prison, which I told you about the oldest prison in New York State. One of Susan's sisters was at the parole hearing. I don't know which one, but I know because at one point I was speaking and this young lady got up and just, you know, like in disgust and walked out the room. But I didn't, I, that's when I knew that I wasn't going anywhere at that hearing because she actually came up and they let her in the hearing. And, but they weren't supposed to do that, but that's how it went. But it was an awakening. It was awakening. I, Cause I, then I said, I said, oh, now I know what this is all about. Now I know what I'm up against. That, that first parole board was um, 22 years. So little did I know I would have 16 more years on, to go on top of that. In total, Dempsey, you spent 38 years in prison and your pretty much your entire adult life up until the age of 57. That's correct. How does that make you feel now? I look at it like this, you know, there's, there's two, there's two, um, there's two uh, explanations right here. One is, first of all, I committed that crime. In the prison system, we got a saying, don't start no shit and there won't be none. I was the one I started it. I made the bed 
nobody else. I don't have any excuses about uh, what the, the reason why I had to serve all that time. I know now I haven't been in that system for a while, that's all part and parcel of the punishment. And so at this moment, I feel pretty good about myself only in the fact that I came out of that relatively sane, stable, and a better, much better, an infinite better person than I went in. Dempsey eventually secured his release in 2017 on the condition that he immediately leave the United States and never return. He settled in England, in Cambridge, with the help of Dr. Ruth Armstrong, a professor of criminology at the University of Cambridge. It's a different world to the prison life he left behind. It's like when you have a dream sometime, you're in a dream state and everything you do is like you're in slow motion, you're underwater, you're hesitant, you're not sure about yourself. Because remember, I've grown up in the prison system. I'm confident about how to move within prison, maximum security prison behind walls, dealing with people who have been in prison 500 years and have 500 more years to go. That's, that's my world, those type of people. What was more interesting when I came out is just to meet people and see them you know, involved in uh, things that would really get under their skin. And I would say to myself, you letting this bother you? Really? It's nothing. It's telling you it's nothing. I could have gotten paroled in New York, but had I had done that, I wouldn't have been completely free because I would have been in all, under the auspices of the New York State Parole Board. And some people will tell you, uh, prison is easy, parole is hard, because you do all this time and now you're out on the street and you've got to be in your house at eight o'clock. You can't go, you can't go across state. You can't get on an airplane. You can't drive. You can't do this. You can't do that. So you're in a prison in society where someone is telling you, you do everything that I say. If not, you're going right back to prison right now. So I thought of that. And then I thought of England. I said, well, uh, I've got to be free. You know, after all these years, I just need to, you know, be completely free. I don't need anybody telling me, you know, what to do. I, I in my mind, after 38 years, seven months, almost 40 years, I've, you know, pretty much uh, paid my dues. And like I said, the dues that I pay is not so much imprisonment, it's by the indelible memory of what I've done. So that's, so that's still with me. So I'm still under my own form of punishment. I don't pose a threat. I committed my crime when I was 16. I'm a much better, I have no propensity to criminality whatsoever. I've been out uh, for five, a little over five years now, well, five years and a month or give or take or two. And I have gotten into, I have no police involvement. I had no instances of violence. I've had no anything. If the, the worst thing that I've ever done since I've been out was walking a dog and not picking up after the dog and just saying, come on, let's go. Nobody's looking. So other than that, I've done everything uh, legit. 
everything legit. So I don't, I'm not a criminal. I've never been, I just had that one instance where emotion and in, in, in immaturity overrode reason to the extent where I destroyed a person and destroyed myself. Having spent the last five years in Cambridge, Dempsey is eager for a change, which brings us back to the reason he contacted me. He's thinking about moving to Belfast. I love Belfast, but I have to ask, why Ireland? Everyone, well, first of all, I have to say there might be a bit of prejudice on my part because my grandfather, Joseph Rooney, was Irish. He was born in a place called Kilcarney. And so aside from the ancestral link that I have with Ireland, every person of Irish extraction that I've spoken to out here in Britain, in Cambridge, with just a lively, more engaging, more warmer personality than the people that I've met here in Cambridge and in Brooklyn. I mean, in, um, in, in Britain. If they're from Ireland, you can talk to them, you can relax with them. It's just a totally different person. I don't know if it's in the DNA out there. I don't know if it's in the biology. But the, uh, the, to, 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 the, the people are just different people personality-wise. The warmth is just totally different. The Irish are just, you know, they're like the Italians in a sense. They're warm. They're embracing. Where the British stereotype of the British Reserve is um, not so much a stereotype, but it is real. It is a fact, you know. And, and I, I don't say this, you know, to, uh, as an indictment against, uh, I'm British, so I don't say it's an indictment. My mother's British. I don't say this against an indictment to anyone, but I'm just, you know, keeping it real. I've been in the abyss. I, I can't take another bad memory. I, I, you know, it's enough for me to deal with this, this memory that I have of 1976. For me, I never stop reliving it. It's it's constant. It's constant. It's 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 always there. You know, there was there's you know in Shakespeare's The Tempest, there's a line. There's somebody has been given a curse, and that curse is, may your every third thought be of the grave. So in one sense. I've cursed, I've been cursed, but it's my own self-curse. I've been cursed by my own action. And so I understand that Shakespeare quote, you know, completely to, you know, in all aspects of what it means that your every third thought be of the grave. You're, you're conscripted, you're, con, you're confined, you're confined to your own uh, inner um, failings, your flaws. It's like I remember, I, I watched um, Shawshank Redemption one time and uh, Morgan, uh, I think it was Morgan Freeman, his character, he was going to parole board and they kept hitting him, he kept, they kept denying him. You know, he, you know, because every time he went there, he says, I'm going to, you know, tell them this. I'm going to try to tell them what they want to hear so they release me. So he just goes in there one time and it says, the hell with what I'm going to tell you how it really was. And uh, so he tells them, he says, look, 
You're talking about another kid in another lifetime who just was dumb, didn't know nothing. But that kid is long gone. So that's the situation I have with myself right now. It's long, long gone. And that's the tragedy of it all. Uh, um, as talent, you know, you know, when I told you about Yates writing that we begin to live when we conceive life is tragedy. I'm not just saying this because of my situation. I just know what existence really is. It's about one um, one stunning heartache after another profound heartbreak, like one profound disappointment. And so once you realize, okay, so this is what existence is all about, it lowers your expectations and then you can just pretty much enjoy the lollipops and the rainbows that do come your way sporadically. This episode of Crime World was produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Claude Amini was the assistant producer. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.